You may be seated, and our children may be dismissed with our volunteers in the back to Children's Church. For those of you who remain, whether here in person or on the live stream, I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2 as we continue our series in this book. We have considered what it means that Jesus is a superior prophet. Last week we looked at what it means that he is a superior king. Today uh, we consider what it means that he is a superior priest. Hebrews chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 10 through 18. This is God's word. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is God's word. Let's pray that he would teach us this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, your word made flesh. And we pray, O Lord, that you would, through your word and the power of the Holy Spirit, communicate to us more of what we need to know about Jesus. And not just so that we would know more facts about him, but that we might draw near and find help from him when we are in need. We pray that you would do this for his glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're looking here at what it means that Jesus is a superior priest, but what is a priest exactly? We, we as a Reformed Presbyterian tradition don't, don't have priests per se. Some Christian traditions call their pastors priests. Does that mean I'm a priest? We kind of get the idea of a prophet, you know, because even, even the secular world talks about having a prophetic voice to just speak truth to power or whatnot. We kind of get the idea of a king, even though we're a representative democracy. We, we, we understand authority. We understand power. We understand people being in a position to make their will not just known, but fulfilled. But what does a priest, what does a priest do? So much of our idea of priesthood is shaped by mystery and mysticism. You know, if you watch any Hollywood movie, you don't know, is a priest just a normal guy? Or is it something more out of an Indiana Jones movie with all this sort of fantasy novel type stuff. I mean, even, even just pastorally, I, I hesitate to even tell people when I meet them that I am a pastor 
because it just brings with it all, not because I'm ashamed of it, but like all of a sudden it's like, oh, oh, oh I, I go to First Baptist or, you know, like, like I'm going to get them or something. What does a priest do? You can think of it this way. If a prophet declares God's will to us, and if a king enforces God's will upon us, a priest embodies God's will for us. It's illustrated in Aaron, the the first high priest of Israel, when God, because the Israelites had done something else to break his law and uh, disobey his commandments, he sent a plague upon the people. And it was Aaron who stood in the gap between the people who were suffering and their holy God, and, and made atonement that brought them back together and enabled the people to experience healing. A priest embodies God's will for us. He stands in the gap between a weak and suffering people and a high and holy God. But what does that look like? All, all we have is the Old Testament where there are special robes and, and, and ornaments and special rituals and, and special days and things that the priests were supposed to do. And you can understand the, the original readers of the book of Hebrews, how when they considered their own lives and when they considered the, the holy and mighty God that, that they worshipped, how he might seem so far off. That if they really wanted to connect with God, if they really wanted to worship God, if they really wanted to to draw near to God, it would be easier, it would be better, it would be even more natural to just go find a priest and draw near to God through that tangible person who's there standing in the gap. The author of Hebrews discourages them from doing this. Don't look back to the old priesthood. We'll talk more about the priesthood as we study this book, but he's discouraging them from thinking about the priesthood solely in the the old ways that they used to consider it. And to think, not looking backwards, but upwards to Christ, who's a better priest, who's a superior priest than any priest that has ever been and any priest that ever will be. Because only Jesus can truly stand in the gap between a suffering and weak and sinful people and a high and holy God. And we're going to consider how it is he does this as we consider that Jesus is a superior high priest in his suffering. He's a superior high priest in his death. And he's a superior high priest in his intercession. So the first thing I want us to consider is how it is that Jesus is a superior high priest in his suffering. See, he knows our nature perfectly. You might not believe that, though. It's easy to go through this life and to begin to wonder, does the high and holy God enthroned above all things who is righteous and perfect in all his attributes, does he really understand what it's like to be me here in this place, bearing the burdens that I bear, suffering the things that I suffer? 
You know, in the Old Testament, when someone was suffering, the Old Testament said, go find a priest. Show yourself to the priest. Get advice from the priest. Like they could go to somebody that they could see, that they, they had an idea, that they knew. Like this guy, he lives down the street from me. He got his tent from the same tent maker. Like I, I grew up playing with his nieces and nephews. Like they, they knew this guy and they knew that, that even if they didn't experience exactly what it is they were going through, this guy gets it. He knows what it's like to be weak and frail. They could go to the priest and feel like more often than not, there was somebody there who understood them. But what does God understand? I mean, it talks about Jesus being tempted, but if Jesus was perfect and righteous and holy, like, could he even have sinned? Was it even possible for him to sin? How can he possibly understand what it's like to be me? I mean, sort of, it feels like he's sort of like that guy that read a book about it. You know, and so then he thinks he knows. I read a book about caring for aging parents. I'm 12, but you know, I read a book, I know. Or I read a book about what it means to you know, really overcome addiction. I've never really experienced it, but I, but I know. Like it's, it can feel like Jesus has an academic knowledge of our situation. That he knows about it because he's God and he knows all things. But he doesn't know, does he? And what the author of Hebrews wants to communicate to us is that Jesus knows our nature perfectly. What a strange thing to say that God should make the founder of our salvation perfect through suffering. What does that even mean? I thought Jesus already was perfect. Jesus is God. How, what, what, what does God need to do to become more perfect? What this is saying is that Jesus, the founder of our salvation, he, he is fully God. Perfect in all his attributes. He's also truly human. And when he took on flesh and dwelt among us, it wasn't just in theory. It wasn't just like a, an illusion, a holodeck version of humanity. It was true humanity in all that it entails. All of its burdens, all of its sufferings. And he experienced this life in such a way that he perfectly, completely, and fully knows all of the suffering that we endure. Even when it says that, that he was tempted, and he suffered when tempted, doesn't mean he got off easy. You and I, when we are tempted, we get off easy when we give in. There, there's this saying, one pastor says, he who falls into temptation yields before the last strain. Like the burden is so overwhelming. There comes a point where we just give in to the temptation so often. And we're like, oh, but Jesus, 
Jesus bore the weight of that temptation all the way to the end, to the fullest, and never fell, never gave in, never yielded to it. And so he suffered that temptation to the maximum extent, never having given in. And he knows our nature perfectly. There is no aspect of the human condition that is hidden from Christ. How is it that you have suffered in this broken, wicked, and sinful world? Where have the world and the flesh and the devil just brought you to the end of yourself? Broken you, twisted you, and left you full of mourning and sorrow and misery. What loss have you endured? What hunger? What fatigue? What temptation have you experienced? What weakness have you endured? What rejection or betrayal has been inflicted upon you? And in the darkness and fear and sadness and grief of that moment, God communicates to us. Jesus knows. He knows the depth of everything that you have suffered, every temptation that you have borne, every betrayal that you have experienced, he himself experienced all of these things. He knows. He's the sort of priest that you can go to and trust that he doesn't just have a book on his shelf about what you are suffering. He knows. Jesus is a superior high priest, not just in his suffering, but also in his death. For he makes a perfect atonement for us. It's a common question in all religions. To wonder, like, what is it that God has left for us to do? Islam answers this question in some ways. You ought to be as devoted as Muhammad. Others would say you need to be as wise as Confucius. You need to be as serene as Buddha. You need to emulate these people. Do there's something for you to do. And we as Christians ask that question all the time. Like, what do I need to do to find assurance, to find peace, to find encouragement, to to have eternal life? Even the rich young ruler came to Jesus personally and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a question that we ask. All the time, even if we don't even realize that's the question we're asking. But the author of Hebrews communicates to us that in Christ there is something completely 
otherworldly going on. He turns that question on its head and says, what is there left for you to do? Look at this strange verse, he says in verse 16. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. What does any of that mean? Propitiation, it's an old word. It's a good word. It's a hard word. It essentially means this, the the satisfaction of divine wrath. To make propitiation... Atonement is a synonym for that. To make propitiation is to satisfy God's wrath against sin and wickedness. This was the the whole point of the Old Testament sacrificial system. And the, 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 the people of Israel would find themselves in places where they realized, I've messed up big. What am I supposed to do? And we have this illusion when we read the book of Leviticus that they would go to the temple and they would buy pigeons or they would bring a lamb and they would hand it over to the high priest and the high priest would go and do the sacrifice. But that, that, that's not how it happened at all. Like the high priest or the, the priests were there to help you do the sacrifice. I mean, there was other sacrifices, the day of atonement. These things were, were limited to the priesthood only. But for those normal, everyday sort of sacrifices that you needed to offer, you brought your sacrifice and the priest would stand and watch and help and you would lay your hands on the sacrifice as if to, to communicate that your sins and the, the guilt that you had was, was going to be borne by this animal. You would sacrifice the animal and apportion the parts and put the things where they needed to go. And it was a hard, bloody, sweaty, smelly work. And nobody was really asking, what is there left for me to do at the end of that? They had done a lot. You remember the account of Abraham offering a sacrifice and he fell asleep under a tree because he was so tired. Here, Jesus made propitiation. He didn't ask for us to bring anything to the table. There's nothing for us to add. There's nothing for us to do. He helps the the offspring of Abraham, which here in the context doesn't mean those who are descended genealogically and biologically from Abraham, but those who, like Abraham, believe God. And he credits to them all the righteousness that they need. Those who believe that the the sacrifice that Jesus made was sufficient to cover all our sins and satisfy all God's wrath against us. But there's nothing left for us in that. There's nothing that we can add There's no extra that we can give. There's nothing else to do. God doesn't need to help the angels. The angels who didn't fall with Satan don't sin. And they're really scratching their heads wondering, metaphorically and symbolically, why does God bother 
Elsewhere in the New Testament, it says the angels long to look into these things. Why would God go to such great lengths to help people who are constantly rebelling, constantly sinning, constantly giving into their weakness, constantly failing, constantly wandering, constantly going astray? Why? And yet, that's exactly what Jesus has done. Not in offering a sacrifice like the Old Testament priests, but offering himself. He was perfect. There was no flaw in him. He had lived a sinful life. He did not deserve death, but he suffered death for us to its fullest that we might not have to suffer death to its fullest. It becomes for us a doorway into the very presence of God and everlasting life. This teaches us that as as our high priest There is nothing that can separate us from God's love for us in Christ. For when Christ offered himself, he offered everything that could possibly be offered to make you right with God. How do you think it is that God sees you? When God looks upon you, what is his disposition? We, th- we don't like to think about wrath. We don't like to think about the need for propitiation. Because it draws to mind this reality that God is righteous and holy and he can't dwell with sin. He can't let the guilty go unpunished. He is holy and perfect in all his attributes and he made a world that was good And he's not going to let this world continue to be characterized by misery and sin and wickedness. He's going to make all things new. He's going to set all things right. And we rightly wonder, what does that mean for us? What will it look like for God's anger and wrath against sin to fall upon me? It's not a question we should avoid. It's not a question we should be afraid of, but the answer that Scripture gives is an an answer that we don't always expect. We think about God's wrath and anger against sin, and we stay there, and we forget that it is the same God who took on flesh to seek and save the lost, to bear that wrath in himself, because so precious is his people that he became like us. That he might clear the way for us to be welcomed into his presence boldly, freely, with the confidence that he is our God and we are his people. How significant is it that the author tells us in verse 11, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. And that is why he is not ashamed He is not ashamed to call them brothers. For the very holiness that God requires of us, he provides in Christ and he leads us into it that we might be led not to condemnation, but to glory. And this not of our own doing, but all of Christ. The Old Testament priests offered sacrifice and sacrifices and sacrifices. They led the people to offer sacrifices and sacrifices and sacrifices. And then they died and there was a new priest. 
And it just went on and on and on. But Jesus died once. And sin was atoned for. He was our propitiation. He finished it. There is nothing left. And all that is required of us is to believe him, to trust him, and to follow him as he leads us to glory. He is a superior high priest. In his suffering, in his death, and in his intercession for us, for he helps us perfectly. It might feel sometimes like God is not paying attention to where we are. Have you ever found yourself in the midst of like everything going wrong? Wondering like, why God? Where are you, God? What did I do, God, to deserve these things? Is God paying attention? This passage tells us, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. Or it could be translated source. Sanctification, holiness. There's only one place to find it. That's in the Lord. And the Lord Jesus Christ came and lived a perfect life. Suffered every possible thing that he could suffer. Walked our streets. Endured our shame. Bore the very wrath of God in his body on our behalf. Yet was without sin. And so it can be said that he is a faithful high priest. He's not like the other high priests of the Old Testament that were sinners just like you and me. He was faithful. But it tells us that he was also merciful. He became like us that he might become not just a faithful high priest who does everything right, but he might be a merciful high priest in the service of God. That the Lord Jesus, everything that he is and everything that he does is centered on bringing us to himself. And he has not ascended to be seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty just to forget about us. He calls us brothers. He's leading us to be where He is. And He continues to be faithful and merciful, ready to help anyone who is in need. Where do you need God's help? today? What what change do you need in your life? What hope do you need to recover? Where do you feel alienated from God or from others and you need redemption brought to bear? Where do you need to grow? Where do you need to find confidence and boldness? Assurance. What we read in this passage is that because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And because he is a merciful and faithful high priest, he's willing. 
He is constantly making intercession for us. Leading us in bringing many sons to glory. But as our high priest, he doesn't just pat us on the head and say it'll all be okay. He doesn't give us platitudes. He gives us it's true and real and right. And he leads us in the way of everlasting glory. One theologian, author, Paul Miller, he wrote A Praying Life, Praying Church, writing on this thing that he calls the J-curve. Like Jesus doesn't lead us just down any path. He leads us down a path that looks like his life, that draws us closer to him, that shapes and forms and makes us more and more like Jesus. And you can't be shaped and formed to be more and more like Jesus if you don't follow where he leads And sometimes, yes, he's just left us here in this world. But not alone. He leads us through suffering. He helps us in our temptations. He leads us even through death toward resurrection. You see the the J-curve. Sometimes it feels like it's getting worse. It's getting darker But those who dwelt in darkness, as we read that passage from Isaiah, have seen a great light. That light is the Lord Jesus. And he's not leading us to everlasting death. He's bringing many sons to glory. He is leading us to eternal life, to resurrection, where all things are made new. And so when we go to Jesus, when we go to our great high priest, the superior high priest, we know, we know that when we go to him in our suffering and in our weakness, like he has compassion on us because he hears us. He knows, he knows. We also know that he has done everything that needs to be done to make us right with God. We can cling to him. We can throw ourselves upon him. We can grab hold of him and know that in Christ, it is finished. All has been accomplished to set us right with our heavenly father. And as we live in this life and we we experience the joys and the sorrows of our frame, we know that he hasn't abandoned us, but is making intercession for us and leading us not to die but to live, to truly live in him, that we might receive from his hand everything that we need. There is no one else that you can go to who can stand in the gap between a sinful, suffering people and a high and holy God and bring us together like Jesus does. He is a superior He is the superior high priest. Trust him. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us. Help us to see Christ more clearly and to know him more deeply. For he knows us. He helps us. He's become like us in every respect. Lord, help us, O Lord, to become more and more like him, to follow where he leads, and to trust that his love for us is unwavering 
It cannot be snatched away. Do not let the fear of death, do not let the evil one, the devil, to exert power over us, to enslave us with his lies. Show us Jesus, the truth of who he is, that we might put our trust in him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.